The different education systems around the world continue to grapple with the challenges that the pandemic has brought to learners, teachers, families, school leaders, and policymakers. From school closures, inequity issues, to problems concerning feeding programs, and even mental well-being. And these problems are seen, felt, and experienced across borders, across age levels, with students in the margins of the society being affected more than ever. To help us make sense of these challenges, Marjorie Brown from Johannesburg, South Africa, joins our show. Marjorie is a former human rights activist, teaching history to girls in South Africa and encouraging critical thinking and global citizenship. Her students have gone on to represent South Africa as youth forums, the Paris Climate Talk, and various Ivy League universities. She started and still leads the Kids Lit in South Africa program, devoted to improving children's literacy in what is still a very unequal society. She was a top 10 finalist in the 2018 Global Teacher Prize. Welcome to our show, Marjorie. Hi, Jim. Thank you for having me on your show. Great pleasure. It's an honor for me to really have someone who's doing a remarkable job even before the pandemic. And and really, I've heard uh, and listened to how you have been really, you know, working so much to to show what's really happening in South Africa and to really fight for, for learners and for educators in your place right now. So let's just start quickly. Um, Marge, how are you? How is your school community or country right now? Well, I'm fine. Um, we're in lockdown. So we're, we have a five levels of lockdown in our country. The highest level is level five, and we're now at level four, which is not very different. We're still confined to our homes. We're allowed to exercise at early hours of the morning outside of our yard. Um, and other than that, we, we can only go out for medical care or for food. Um, so most of the education in our country is taking place online, but that means that... Um, the, the better off, well-resourced schools are teaching online, and I'm lucky enough to work in a well-resourced school, but um, our school does a lot of community outreach in the inner city, and there the schools are closed. The children do not only not have devices for or a data to access online teaching, but many of those children also um, don't have their own textbooks. So it means that even if they are at home, they don't have educational um, resources with which to continue their learning. There is a very glaring a reality of the haves and have-nots right now, right? And you've mentioned about everything's going online in your place, but there are also certain schools or maybe you know students who don't have access to even textbooks. What has been really the effect of that? It's, I think it's a very fundamental problem with or without pandemic, access to textbook, right, Marge? Yes. I mean, it, totally, Jim. The, South Africa is known as the most unequal country in the world, unfortunately. It's not something to be proud of, but that's our status. And um, so we have these incredibly well-resourced schools, and then we have children in some schools without textbooks, even though there are NGOs in our country that challenged the government on this, in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that every child should have their own textbook. But here we sit five years after that Supreme Court ruling with schools where children still do not have their own textbooks. 
So come lockdown, they were not able to go home with their own workbook, their own textbook, um, which could have helped enormously because those same children now are accessing what they can on radio and television. Um, so the education department is trying to broadcast um, um, lessons on radio and television and, and then also there are a lot of lessons for those who can access them on computers using the internet. There are a lot of lovely resources available, but that's only if you can access the internet. I'm very interested with the situation that you are in right now. It's because it reflects, you know, it also reflects what's happening in the Philippines right now. There's a big talk about the new normal going online. So everything's being done online, online learning, online teaching, everything else is online. But, you know, there's a greater part of our society that does not have access to this internet because they are very expensive um, investments. Yes. The tools are very expensive for, you know, a regular family. And more than even investing on these devices, the main challenge right now for a lot of families or parents is to make sure that there's food on the table for the whole family, for the children. Marge, uh, what have been the concrete steps? Like aside from broadcast through TV or radio station, you know, I'm very interested in know, uh, knowing grassroots initiatives. Okay, so so in terms of um, NGO initiatives, um, some publishers have tried to provide um, online books via WhatsApp to to um, sc schools, so for school children to be able to access um, stories on WhatsApp because um, our country has um, a problem with, with um, equality, but because of that, a lot of um, poorer people at least have a phone and access to WhatsApp if they can afford data. So the use of WhatsApp and, and online stories or whatever has been one thing that's also come through aside from TV and radio. Um, we also have had situations where schools are trying to twin with each other. So our school, for instance, um, has bought a program that will allow maths and science lessons to be broadcast into a very poor, under-resourced school in our area. And that would help, but as long as there's lockdown and the children are not at school, that's not able to happen. We also supply one-on-one -on -one tutoring and support for another under-resourced school in town every Monday afternoon. But at the moment, those children are not at school. What worries me more is that they don't have access to food. Um, there are at least 10 million children in South Africa that rely on, uh, on school meals. And often the school meal will be the only meal they get in the day. So the fact that schools are closed down means that a lot of children are going hungry. The government has tried to respond to this by offering um, um, food parcels. But from what we know of the areas that we work with, those food parcels have not reached those communities. Um, some of the informal settlements we work with, we support 22 early childhood education projects. They have not seen a government food parcel in the last month and a half. So what we did was we there's an, a non-governmental organization that lobbied and we all signed the petition 
um, for a childcare grant that is existing in our country, for that child grant to be increased because it was um, like 425 rand, which is not much um, per month. And we asked that that be increased. And that petition and that protest led to the government agreeing to increase the child care grant for vulnerable children um, by 300 rand a month. So that'll take it up to about 700 rand, but only for six months, for the next six months. But that was a victory, Jim, because we're talking, we're talking about not only education, we're talking about survival here. And you've been part of the program, you know, Maslow before Bloom. And this is as fundamental as it gets that some children will die of starvation unless we as teachers start lobbying for food, even before we can start lobbying for education. Marge, that's a lovely sharing. That's, that's a powerful idea and a powerful action that you have done. Yeah, you were right. We wrote about and we are advocating for Maslow before Bloom. And I totally agree with you. Right now, it's really hard to, you know, to ensure that, that students are learning if we know that, you know, there's no food you know, inside their stomach or they're feeling yeah. um they have a high level of anxiety. Like it's not just, you know, it's not just protecting themselves from the virus itself. It's really having food to survive their day-to-day -day life. Teachers, I think, are not used to lobbying for something. Um, I don't know yeah. if that's a, it's really a personal observation. In my context right now, teachers are really not that, you know, not out there lobbying for something. It's really like, you know, just waiting for, for instruction and, and, and doing things together. But I, I mm. got your point about, you know, the importance of teachers lobbying, not just for learning, but even for making sure that, uh, that our students are, are safe and they're well so that they can actually learn better, learn yeah. more effectively. Jumping to instruction curriculum and assessments. I've read a blog about, uh, from Edu. Eduweek or Eduvlog, I think, and they talk about the learning gap that would happen. Like the thing that we will realize after a pandemic is that there's a learning gap. In terms of instruction and curriculum and even assessments, March, what has been the core problems uh, maybe in the education system in, in South Africa? Well, I think for the independent schools who are well-resourced, they will go ahead more or less the same as usual and, and with a little bit of trimming of their mid-year school year runs from January to December. And so um, the mid-year exams are coming up now in June and um, the government schools might have to forfeit any mid-year exam and all the exams in the government schools will then be at the end of the year, um, but maybe the, the final year students, which we call the matriculants, the grade 12s, they would have what we call the preliminary examinations in September and then write their finals in December. Those assessments may be trimmed a little. So the government, the education departments are looking at the core syllabus and what can be cut out of the curriculum to trim those assessments so that the core content skills are not sacrificed. 
that would probably mean that if the students do go back, and the plan at the moment is that students should be back in school in June, July. And I say June, July because actually we are waiting for an address from the Minister of Education, which is supposed to happen tomorrow. And um, so we will hear tomorrow whether the return date for students is going to be June or July. And then what will probably happen is that school holidays will be cut, they will be shortened, and maybe every grade in state schools, because those schools haven't been able to continue as usual with online learning, that once they're back in the classroom, they will have to have extra hours of education per week, plus their holidays trimmed so that they can cover at least the core syllabus. The problem is to make sure that the schools can do social distancing and provide masks and provide sanitizers for all students. And the problem is, is that we have many schools in our country that don't have access to running water. So even providing the means of sanitizing and being able to wash your hands, use sanitizer and have social distancing. When we have huge classes in government schools of up to 40 pupils in a class, it's going to be very difficult to carry on with education and provide social distancing. So these are the problems that the Department of Education has been grappling with. And it'll be interesting to see what the announcement is tomorrow. Marge, I have a very personal question in terms of your thoughts about, you know, assessment. There are a lot of not just K-12 schools, but actually in the higher education institutions where they really adjusted how they're grading their students and even how they deliver assessments. What's your take about mm. assessments of the grading system at this time of the pandemic? Again, I think it depends on your situation. Um, for the independent schools where online learning has been going on, there's a discussion about how one can set online assessments that still have integrity. So there are certain forms of assessment, um, for example, where pupils have to interpret sources and then write essays with an argument and counter-argument based on those sources, where it's very difficult for those pupils to um, regard it as an open book exam and, and copy down the answers. Um, other other um, subjects are looking at um, a, an open book exam which more tests research skills. So there's a lot of question um, in subjects for the independent schools of how what can be examined, what skills can be examined, but still retaining the authenticity of what is supposed to be tested so that you can, in, and pupils are going to have to sign um, an oath that the work is their own. So that's on the one level. On another level, um, with state schools, um, the, the, the government is pretty keen to go ahead with assessments at every level because they don't want the school year to be lost. There are so many students in each year group that for the students to repeat uh, a year is just out of the question. And, and yet at the same time, South Africa is really a system, its education system is based on assessments 
where they want, they, they're basically saying as well, it's very difficult for universities then without an assessment to, to work out who's going to get a university pass or not. So in our, in our country, definitely assessments are going ahead in one way or another. They will be trimmed um, unless there's a big change in the announcement tomorrow. Up until now, the department has said we will complete the school year. There will be some form of assessment, even if it's trimmed. There will be an extension of education once the students are back. Um, I can't say that's going to happen in all state schools because of the lack of social distancing. But in independent schools, it seems as though it's pretty much steaming ahead as usual. Yeah, Marge, I agree with you. Um, I think that really the challenge really right now is, like in our country also, even with the idea of doing physical encounter, like face-to-face -face instruction, it's really becoming like a, really a big challenge because of social distancing, right? We have state schools or government schools or public schools that do not really have enough resources to really like ensure safety as simple as social distancing, for example, because the number of students in each classroom is really not within the ideal, uh, the normal ideal teacher-student ratio. So right now, um, I think it's more, more of a challenge since we are calling for social distancing. And I love that you also emphasize about maintaining still the integrity of the assessments while we're doing distance learning and all these things. The idea of authentic assessments is really, really important. Uh, Marge, we're now on our last stretch. How can school leaders and government leaders also help teachers right now? I think um, teachers right now just need clarity. And at the moment, um, there have been decisions made which have had to be reversed um, because it seems that the one department, government department, might say we've got to, you know, the education department is wanting to get back to school. And then another department might rein them in, say the Department of Health, and say, you know, you can't because you can't um, come up with the correct social distancing. So um, in as much as we as teachers have been fumbling and stumbling to just see what can still continue and see what can happen and see what can't happen. I get an impression that's what the government's doing as well. And I'm sure your country's the same, but our government is balancing a whole lot of things. They're balancing um, lockdown for people's safety and security versus opening up so that the economy can start lifting up because our economy is on its knees, it's suffering with this lockdown, so many people are starving and losing their jobs. So there's a lot of pressure on government to open up. But at the same time, how does it open up and ensure people's security? And I get a sense that there's a lot of jostling within the government. Um, there's a lot of pressure being put on the president and cabinet to open up from the business world. But then from the health world, um, people are saying, no, you can't. And then from the parents, parents want to go back to work. So they are saying, you've got to open up. Our children must return to school because we can't teach them and go to work. And we can't leave them alone at home. Um, in which case, schools then are seen as the solution to send the children back to school so that we can go to work. 
um, which, which puts teachers at risk if there's no safety procedure. At the same time, we will probably find ourselves back at school where we won't have all the children back at school because the parents who need to go back to work will send their children to school. Other parents who can survive by working online may wait and see what the infection rates are like in the schools before they send their children to school. And they might expect us to continue with online teaching. So we might have to do both initially. We might be recalled back to school to teach, but be teaching half a class face-to-face -face and half a class online. So, you know, and that'll be a parent's prerogative if they say, I'm not sending my child to school because I'm worried about their safety and I'm in a position maybe to, you know, work from home. So all of those uncertain situations will have to be navigated by the Departments of Education, the Department of Health, the Department of Labor, and we are just caught in the middle of a lot of uncertainty. Thank you for those enlightening ideas. I think you have really brought a lot of very helpful ideas to really help teachers and even school leaders navigate the education system, um, make decisions at this time of the pandemic. Um, truly, the pandemic really touches on the different areas of governance, right? You've mentioned about yeah. um, a pressure on the highest ranking officials of the government from the different areas. And that is, I think, very, very um, real in a lot of countries. And the education has to, uh, system has to grapple within that bigger system. So there are a lot of dynamics, a lot of politics happening. But hopefully, hopefully, they always consider um, the well-being of, of the students, uh, the well-being of the teachers, and everyone involved in, in making sure that our students continue that they are continued to be um, encouraged and supported with their learning. Uh, Marge, it's an honor yeah. to really have you in, in my show. And I'm really, really thankful for giving me the opportunity to discuss these things with you and to interview you. Yeah. So thank you so much, Marge. Thank you, Jim. It was really great. I'm glad we made this happen. And thank you for your show and all the work you're doing. We continue to... Pray for everyone's safety and good health in South Africa. And to you, Marge, most especially, please continue being the voice of teachers, not just in your community in South Africa, but around the world. We need more of you who would continue fighting for, not just for the well-being or for the betterment of the education community or the teachers, but even for our students, especially those in the margins of the society. So, Marge, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Keep well. Thanks. Right, and bye bye. Thank you to our listeners also have been following our Global Voices series that really looks into the effect of the pandemic into the education system. So, continue subscribing and listening to our show. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Bye.